Well, most of you know I began preaching many years ago at the height of the seeker-sensitive movement in um, the mid-90s. And by the grace of God, I struggled doing so. Um, And I say that because I'm not very creative, um, and preaching topically and coming up with um, relevant four to five week uh, sermon series and uh, material that was new and innovative every week was, was horribly, horribly difficult for me. And fortunately, early on, I came to the realization um, that, to quote another pastor, novelty may be entertaining, but it isn't edifying. And that's because novelty has this tendency to turn our attention away from the text of Scripture and onto the pastor, and it also has this tendency to turn the congregation or congregants into consumers. And my charge as a pastor, in the words of C.S. Lewis, was not to or is not to try experiments on rats or even teach performing dogs new tricks. My call as a pastor is, or my charge as a pastor is what Peter's charge was, which is feed my sheep. My charge as a pastor is to do what the apostles did, which was simply to remind Christians of the truths they had already heard. So that's what I plan to do tonight. Those who approach the interpretation of Scripture through a covenantal framework and believe that redemptive history and God's relationship with His people is revealed in Scripture through covenants to us Genesis 17 is not going to be new, it's not going to be novel, it's not going to be innovative, as you've just heard. But that's okay because it's something that we need to hear because we need to be reminded of the truth contained in it. To be honest with you, Genesis 17, not that I haven't already been honest, but you know what I mean. Genesis 17 should never get old. We should never approach it as if there's nothing for us to gain or to glean from this wonderful chapter. For people like us who regularly, who, whose faith regularly collides with our circumstances, there is as much in this chapter for us as there was for Abram who lived through it. There is just as much for us as there was for the Israelites who first heard the story. The the reason Moses was writing was for them, and it's as important for us as it was for them, because we, like them, need our faith revived. We We need it revived on a regular basis. So, You'll find the outline in the back of your bulletin. We're going to look at, uh, we're going to break this down into three points. We're going to look at Abram's resignation, we'll look at God's reassurance, and then Abram's, uh, Abraham's response. And forgive me if I, you know, we've been 16 chapters calling him Abram, and now all of a sudden we're turning on a dime, and now he's Abraham. Um, and that'll help us in just a few minutes when, when we see uh, that happen. But that outline is there. I've also attempted to break down the middle section of God's reassurance into a few points, and Ernie's reminded me that that's way too small for some of you, uh, and so I apologize for that. And in the conclusion, there are really only two points, not three, right? So, uh, just a little housekeeping. And uh, children, your words are going to be in the normal place as well, all right? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, would you give us ears to hear, and would you prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word It is you who are speaking to us through it. And I pray that you would grant me the grace and fill me with your spirit that I might do something for you and your people as I deliver that word. Attend to me as I do this work that you've called me to do. I pray that you would use me as you see fit. I pray that it would not return void. And I pray these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Well, let's begin with Abram's resignation. Our passage very simply opens with an age statement. Abraham was 99 years old. 
And that means that it's been 24 years since he originally heard the promise, or actually since he was originally called out from his family and his home and his country to follow the Lord. And it's been 13 years uh, since he and Sarai attempted their do-it-yourself project that we heard last week. And still there's no child. The promise is, is yet to be fulfilled, and we're going to see later in this passage how Abram, um, the questions that he had, uh, the pleas that he made, um, his, his reactions reveal something very specific, and they reveal that despite the words of a faithful God, despite his promises being reiterated, despite the visual pictures of dust and stars, despite the ratification ceremony that we saw in chapter 15 where the oven and the pot pass through the bloody pieces, despite all of those things, Abram continued to struggle. He continued to struggle. Again, you've heard me say this several times over the last few weeks, but his faith was colliding with his circumstances, and we understand that. And the struggle was significant enough that here in chapter 17, we find that Abram has resigned himself. He's resigned himself to to trust in, he's resigned himself in the fact that Ishmael is going to be the one through whom the promise is fulfilled. Listen to the words of Calvin. He put it this way, Abram long remained satisfied with that son who would at length be rejected and was led away by the presence of his son according to the flesh from the expectation of a spiritual seed. In other words, Abram had resigned himself to believe that his substitute was going to be the actual blessing. He had resigned himself and had become comfortable with and content with all of his hope being placed in the do-it-yourself product of he and his wife Sarai. And it's in the midst of that resignation that God comes with His reassurance. And He reassures Him in four specific ways, and we need to walk through those. First, we see Moses, he says, the Lord, or we see Moses say, the Lord appeared and said, I am God Almighty. God is being very specific to the situation, and the Lord reveals Himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. Derek Kidner says in Genesis, it's a title that tends to be matched to situations where God's servants are hard-pressed and needing assurance. You see, the name means the God of sufficient power and might, and that power and might means that He is not only able to protect and defend His people, but He's also able to provide for any need that they might have, and He was able and was going to be able to fulfill any promise, no matter how significant or no matter how considerable it might be. In the words of one commentator, El El Shaddai is the God who so constrains nature that it does His will and so subdues it that it bows to and subserves grace. In other words, El Shaddai, the God of might and power, who is able to fulfill His promises, is also able to bring life from a barren womb. And He will do so in the fullness of time and according to His divine will and pleasure. But He not only reveals Himself in regard to who He is and and His character, He also reveals Himself in terms of what He's done and what He will do. He said, walk before me and be blameless, that I might make a covenant between me and you and may multiply multiply you greatly. God has entered in, we've seen this already, God has entered into a covenant with Abram. And while he had graciously initiated this covenant, and uh, and while that covenant was based solely upon the kind intention of his will and his will alone, he had also shown through a what we call a self-maledictory oath in chapter 15 that he would fulfill those promises. He would secure them by himself. But as a party and as a participant in the covenant, Abram had responsibilities. Abram had obligations. He was to act like a participant. Grace 
not only elicits a response, it demands a response. And he had an obligation or a responsibility to fulfill because of this covenant. And that obligation was to believe. And that belief exhibited itself or was to exhibit itself through obedience. Now, it's important for us to understand this wasn't a call to moral perfection. Children, this is a question in your family worship on Friday, okay? So hang on to this. It wasn't a call to moral perfection. It was, in the words of Gordon Wenham, to live life before him, a life in which every step taken was looking to God, and every day you were, he was to accompany him. Remember the context Abram has been living really half-heartedly. Abraham or Abram has, has been trusting the Lord in one regard in terms of the end and the fulfillment of the promise, but he hasn't been trusting the Lord on the other hand or in, or in another way in regard to the means to that end. So this was a call by God to him to live completely in, in a completely loyal way, to not be half-hearted, but to be wholehearted in His commitment. It was a call to love God and to trust God and to live in light of that love and trust. Those of you who read Table Talk magazine will, remember, will, will recognize these words. It was a call to live quorum Deo, or before the face of God at all times. To paraphrase Matthew Henry, it was a call to walk before God in integrity. It was to set God always before him and to think and speak and act in everything as someone who was always under his eye. He goes on to say it was to have a constant regard for his word as his rule and his glory, as his end in all his actions, and to continually live in awe of him. And of course, all of that was to be an outflow of his trust and love, of God's love and trust that he had set upon him. It was all to, to flow out of that which he had received by faith. It was a response, again, to the grace of God. And we notice in verse 3 what Abram does. Very simply, Abram fell on his face. In other words, he took a posture of reverence and awe and humility and contrition. It was a posture that acknowledged the relationship that had been established, but it also acknowledged that he had tread upon and tarnished that relationship, but he now knows that it was being reaffirmed. Again, God was initiating this reaffirmation. It was a way for Abram to show gratitude and and. Well, gratitude and appreciation for the Lord's kindness, for His patience and His long-suffering, for His faithfulness. It was a right response for someone who had repeatedly failed to trust and love the Lord. It was an appropriate response that said, I'm listening, and I'm willing to do what it is you desire. Well, the second way that God reassures Abram is by renaming him. Look at verse, or the end of verse 3. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And of course, at that time, names meant a little more than they mean now. Uh, names at that time were more than just labels. In some cases, they describe the circumstances of a birth. Sometimes they describe the character of the individual being named. Sometimes uh, they describe something future that was in the future of that individual. So you may remember Abram's name meant exalted father. And you can imagine what his life has been like. Exalted father for years and years and years and yet no children. But now his name will be Abraham. The Lord changes it. He extends it. He expands upon it. And it means the father of multitudes. 
Imagine having this name, as hard as it is for me just in this time. Imagine for Abraham having a name for 99 years and for people to begin calling him something different. The first thing he would have needed to do is to make sure that they were talking to him. Somebody probably had to remind him, hey, that's you. And then on top of that, every time he heard his name, he would be reminded of what it meant and what the Lord had promised. In the words again of Gordon Wenham, he said, God himself dictated a name change in midlife. He actually should have said late life, but he said midlife. Maybe for Abram it was. But this makes the name more than a pious parental hope that the child may or may not fulfill, but a divinely guaranteed statement about Abraham's identity and future destiny. His very name guarantees that he will be the father of many nations. And that leads perfectly into the third way that the Lord reassures him. The third way he sought to reassure him was by reaffirming the covenant. And the reaffirmation of the covenant has two parts to it. You'll see the first part in verses uh, 4 to 8. That first part focuses on uh, God's making of the covenant. And then the second part in verses 9 to 14 focuses on Abraham's role in keeping the covenant. The first part involved a reminding and an expanding in some points of the covenant that he had made of those original promises, and the second part involved the giving of a sign. And the sign was going to be much greater than and more important than the dust of the ground and the stars of the sky. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's look at the first part in verses 4 to 8. This is the third time that God has laid before Abram, Abraham the uh, promises that he made back in chapter 12. Okay? And I don't think he sighed or he rolled his eyes in exasperation and said, okay, let's go over this again. He was more gracious than that. I think he understood Abraham's struggle. He understood what it had been like. I think it's safe to say Abraham hasn't heard from God in 13 years. And because he hadn't heard from him, the mundane, the mundaneness and the ordinariness of, of life had lulled him into complacency, as it would for all of us. But God doesn't try to awaken him with something new and innovative. He doesn't try to do something miraculous to get his attention. What does he do for the third time? He simply reminds him of what he's already said. He reminds him of what he's already, what God has already said and what he has already heard. And again, in a couple of cases, expands upon them. Let's look at these quickly. In chapter 12, God had said he would make Abraham a great nation. And now he's saying, you're not going to be just a a, a father of of a nation. You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And you're going to be the father of the kings of those nations. And of course, we're going to see in the weeks ahead who those nations were and the kings that were leading them. And then he promised Abraham that not only would the covenant be between him and and Abraham or between the two of them personally, but, but that the covenant was going to be between him and Abraham and Abraham's offspring corporately. He said, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. And this is why you hear us say, uh, particularly me and Aaron, over and over again, we talk about being a part of a covenant community. This is where we see that take shape. This, is, again, was a covenant that Abraham, in which Abraham was a participant, but it was also a covenant in which the, his descendants were participants. They were all participants together. God was committing Himself not only to Abraham, but to Abraham's offspring. And this covenant was everlasting. It was eternal. It was never to be nullified or annulled. They may break it by not fulfilling their obligations to believe and to live blamelessly, but that would not nullify or annul the covenant. Because the only person that could annul or nullify the covenant was the one who made the covenant, and the one who made the covenant had promised that he would fulfill his obligations, and he had taken an oath to let them know that he would never do that, or he would always do it. He would always fulfill his promises. He would never break it. 
He also reiterated His promise of the land that again would be His, but also His descendants after Him. And I want to look at this, specifically at the language at the end of verse 7 and, and, and verse 8. He says, to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will be their God. Ligon Duncan says this is a marriage pledge. He said it's a marriage pledge from God to Abraham. God is pronouncing his own I will. God is pronouncing, he says, his own I do. He was not only pledging offspring and a land, he was pledging himself. Let that sink in a minute. God is pledging himself. Not only, not only would they be his possession, he would be theirs. He was in the truest sense the covenant blessing. They could count on him when times were joyful or sad. By the way, if I've married you, these are going to sound familiar. They knew. They knew they could count on him whether there are times that, whether they were experiencing adversity or prosperity. They knew that he would be a true and faithful God, holding to them and to them alone every day of their life for the rest of their life, even in eternal life. They were His, and He was theirs. Now, the second part of the affirmation is found in verses 9 to 14. And here, we see God add something to confirm this word that He has just now pronounced. He's once again spoken, and now the sign will come. In chapters 13 and 15, I've already referenced this. He, he spoke of dust, and He spoke of stars in the sky but we know that based upon, and we know this is going to be more significant than that based upon this, the significance of the sign as well as the language he used as he shared this and as he was explaining it with Abraham. And notice what he does. He began again stressing the obligations of the covenant, Abraham's obligations, his offspring's obligations as parties or as participants. Again, grace not only elicits, it demands a response. So Abraham and his offspring after him had obligations and responsibilities to fulfill as covenant participants. And so keeping their obligations did not bring them into covenant with God. God had initiated the covenant and, and Abraham had believed by faith. He had established the covenant, but they had responsibilities to fulfill he had made it. They were to keep it. God had been gracious. They were responding in faith. And again, that faith would be exhibited through obedience. And the one specific obligation that He gave them here in Genesis 17 was circumcision. Look at verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, you uh, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And I'm sure you picked up on it right away as we read through those verses. We, we've got a little bit of a problem. Because in this, God says that circumcision is both the covenant and the sign of the covenant. And we have to ask ourselves, which is it? Is it the sign or is it the thing signified? And the answer to the question is, it is the sign. Right? It is the sign but as you hear us say on a weekly basis when we come to the table, the sign was so closely related to that which it pointed to, to that which it related, that the terms and that which was, was the sign and that which was signified, those terms were used interchangeably. They were inextricably linked together. You see, circumcision was a common practice at the time. 
something many nations were doing, all the nations but the Philistines. And, and God took what was common, again, a phrase you hear us say, God took what was common and set it apart for holy use. It, in and of itself, did nothing. Circumcision did nothing. But being paired with His Word, it became something very, very special for Abraham and his offspring. It had become a visible Word. and It had become a visible Word that had been carved into Abraham and, and the other male's bodies. And it was meant to confirm God's promise of an offspring. It makes sense, does it not? A sign they would never get away from. And it pointed to a son and to offspring. It became a sign that was meant to strengthen their faith. Every time they saw it, they would be reminded of God's faithfulness and of His promises. It became a seal. It was meant to authenticate and validate and guarantee those promises and that they were true and that they were for them and that, they would, and that He would fulfill them. It became a seal that not only reflected the eternal nature of the covenant, right? it's in their flesh, it's never going away. So it not only reflected the eternal nature of the covenant, but it served as a brand. It was a brand that identified them as the people of God, and it initiated them within the covenant community to which they belonged. And of course we know, as, as we read earlier in our con- Confession of sin, it pointed to something greater. We know that it pointed to the need of cleansing of sin and the spirituality or the spiritual reality of the need of circumcision of the heart. They needed something cut away to live. And it was to be given to every male of the household, biological or not. And it was from that point forward. After Abraham did it to all the males, from that day forward, it was to be given to infants at eight days old. And I want you to notice verse 14. It was so significant that God said, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off shall be cut off from His people. He has broken my covenant. You don't take the sign. You're cut off. Calvin put it this way. Because it is not in man's power to sever what God has joined. God has joined this common, this common thing to His Word. He has brought them together in this sacramental union Once that's happened, no one can despise or neglect the sign without at the same time being guilty of rejecting the Word itself. In this way, he deprives himself of the benefit that the sign offers. I'm going to let that marinate. Well, the final way the Lord seeks to reassure Abraham is by renaming Sarai. Verse 15 says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Now, unlike Abram and Abraham... While there is a little difference in the spelling, there's not a difference in the meaning. Both mean princess. But the point was, the fulfilling is coming. Right? The fulfilling is coming. The fullness of time had come. The waiting was over. It was time that the Lord was going to open her womb. What she, had been, what she had been longing for was going to happen. She would have a son. And, not, and he says, you're not only going to have a son, you're going, to, you're going to be the mother of nations. Everything that I promised Abraham, he was going to be the father of nations. Those nations are coming through you, not Hagar. 
those kings of those nations that Abraham is going to be the father, they're coming through you. You're going to be the mother of kings. And her new name right, was that, that spiritual marker, that point. Again, every time she heard her name, she would be reminded of the promises of God and how much the weight will have been worth it. And that finally brings us to our last point, which is Abraham's response. And it's here that we see those reactions. It's here that we see those questions. It's here that we see uh, those pleas that indicated his indignation or his resignation and, and maybe his indignation. Look at verse 17. Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he said to himself, shall, I be, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, Sarah, who's 99 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. His circumstances were still colliding with his faith. Over and over and over again. Surely they're too old. Surely we're too old, God. Surely. And what about, I, you know, Ishmael, he's a good kid. He's already here. And God said, no. Ligon Duncan, this is great. Ligon Duncan calls it a no of grace. He said his no, God's no, was far better than the yes Abraham desired. As I mentioned last week, God was eliminating every possibility but miracle to fulfill this promise, and He's done it. Sarah's going to have a son. She's going to name him Isaac. It means laughter. Again, every time they spoke His name, every time, Isaac, come here. Isaac, stop that. Isaac, don't put your finger there. Isaac, whatever it was, they would remember. They had laughed. And they hadn't believed the Lord. Saving faith wanes, but God always keeps His word. And that would be the reminder, a gracious reminder. But we know from Paul's words in Romans 4 that he hadn't give, given up completely. Struggling, but hadn't given up. He still, it, it, he had a grip on the promise, but boy, his hands were tired. You've been there, right? You've, you've been working in the yard, and you've, you're, you've gripped something so tightly that it, it, at some point your hands are cramping, and you start to lose. It's where Abram, Abraham is with this, the promise, but it's still there. And Moses tells us that he responded in faith. Despite how weak it was, Verse 22 says, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, and bought it with his money, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. And the question that we're always left is, well, how do we respond? How do we respond? Two ways. First is this, and Aaron has already kind of gone down this road with us. The Abrahamic covenant, while it did have an earthly, while it did have earthly and biological and national and geographical aspects to it, it pointed to a greater spiritual reality. The Abrahamic covenant was, was a spiritual covenant with spiritual blessings, promising spiritual blessings. Listen to the words of Paul from Galatians 
Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, all of the offspring that we've been hearing about in 12, 13, 15, and 17, it did include all of the spiritual descendants of Abraham. It was, it was plur, in a plural and a corporate sense, but the promises were specifically made to one of those offspring. And that one would be the one through whom all the promises would be yes and amen, and that one is the Lord Jesus. And if we have a problem, if we have problem with that, and if, if, if our theology collides a little bit, we've got to ask ourselves, if our theology is clashing with Paul, I heard this a couple weeks ago, this is great, I'm going to hang on to it and I'm going to repeat it a lot. If your theology clashes with Paul, you need to get another theology. Paul interprets this for us and says this points to Christ because all of the promises are yes and amen in Him. Later in the chapter, he says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Because we believe the gospel, we've heard the gospel preached, and we've responded in faith, and we've repented of our sin, and we've turned to faith in Christ and trusted Him for our salvation, we've been united to Christ by the Spirit. We're identified with Him. We're in this mystical, close, intimate relationship with Him. We've been enveloped by Him. Our sin and guilt and shame that we had have been placed upon Him. His robe of righteousness have been placed upon us. We're hiding in Him, having been united to Him. And in the words of Calvin, we're so closely united to Him that in the presence of God, we bear the name and character of Christ and are viewed in Him rather than in ourselves. Thanks be to God that when the Lord looks at us, when God looks at us, He doesn't see us. He sees the Lord Jesus. And Paul says that what's taken place within us spiritually is signified and sealed in our baptisms. We'll come, to that, we'll come back to that in just a minute. And then he concludes chapter 3 with these words, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Again, the Abrahamic covenant was, was never ultimately about physical descendants, physical promises, or physical blessings, physical land. It was about spiritual descendants, spiritual promises, and spiritual blessings. Therefore, we should respond to this passage in humility because we've been counted among the stars of the sky. We should respond with reverence and awe because we have been counted among those of every tribe, nation, and tongue who Christ has blessed. We should respond in, by rejoicing that we are counted among those who are awaiting our residence in a land far more magnificent than Canaan. We are awaiting a land, we are awaiting our true inheritance that's being kept in heaven for us. And we, like Abraham, like our father Abraham, are looking forward to a city without foundations whose designer and builder is God. So that's the first thing tonight, right? Second thing, we're going to baptize Theodore. We're going to baptize Theodore Christopher. We baptize our children because of this passage. More than that, but this is where it begins. Because God has always included children in the number of His people throughout the Old and New Testaments. That hasn't been rescinded. And we've just seen that God made the promises. They were for Him and His offspring. And Peter in Acts 2 uses this exact same language. He's quoting this passage when he responds. When the people say, what must we do? They've heard Him preach. They go, what must we do? And Peter says, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the, forgiveness of your, for, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. We're going to baptize Theodore. We baptize our children because the God who has promised to be our God has promised to be their God. Children, do you hear that? God who has promised to be your parents' God has promised to be your God too. You are His. We're baptized, we baptize our children because our children belong to the member, membership of the visible church. They are a part of the covenant community as they've always been. We know, we've read it uh, we read from Deuteronomy 10, right? But Deuteronomy 30 also tells us the same thing that Deuteronomy 10 tells us. And it tells us that physical circumcision pointed to an internal reality. It was an outward sign, ultimately pointed to our need of a circumcision of the heart that we can't do ourselves. For adults, right? It's a, it's, the baptism is, uh, or circumcision at the time was, for adults, was a sign of what had already happened, right? And but it was also for our children, it was an anticipation right, of what was, what was being prayed for. And we know from Colossians 2, 11 and 12 that baptism points to the same reality. We read that as a part of our New Testament, our New Testament reading. Baptism and circumcision point to the same realities. What that means is, and Paul says that, again, Paul says that, those those main clauses of those two verses right, are connected. Baptism-like circumcision is a visible word that confirms God's promises. It's a sign that is meant to strengthen our faith in God and His promises. It's a seal that's meant to authenticate and validate and guarantee that the promises are true and that the promises are for us and that God is going to fulfill them. It's a seal that not, only, that, that not only reflects the eternal nature of the covenant, but it, it serves as a brand. It identifies those who are baptized as, as being a part of the covenant community. It initiates them into the covenant community. And it's to be given to every male and female. The new covenant expands this beyond just male to male and female. And it's to be given to infants. It's to be given to infants. It's, it's not to be neglected. It's not to be ignored or, or delayed. The language in our confession says neglected because it's inextricably linked to faith. And it's inextricably linked to the faith of the parents. And it's inextricably linked to the faith their parents will pray will be granted to their children. We don't want to deprive them of the benefits of the sign. Now, does it, the question is, does it, does it guarantee salvation? And the answer is no. Right? We know we're going to see in the next, next few weeks, right? Isaac was circumcised. I mean, I'm sorry, Ishmael was circumcised. Isaac is going to be circumcised. But we've already seen, we already read in chapter 17, the promise will be will be experienced through Isaac, not Ishmael. Israel received a, a temporal blessing, not a spiritual one. Both were circumcised. One actually responded in faith. But the general promise and the ordinary hope is that our children will respond. Our children will be, will be saved. We have every reason to believe they will. We have every reason to believe that when we train them up in the way they should go, and we instruct them in the things of the Lord, that when they grow old, they will not depart from what they've been taught. That is the rule, not the exception. And so thanks be to God for His promises that are, that are ours in Christ. And may we continue to cling to them, even, even when our grip is loose. May we continue to, to hold tight to those promises 
And may we teach and pray that our children would do the same as we train them up in the things of the Lord. May they never know a day apart from the Lord Jesus. Caleb and Audrey, would you come join me down here? Brothers and sisters, baptism is not only a means of grace when the water is placed upon us. I said this a couple weeks ago. Baptism is a means of grace for all of us who are watching this take place. It's a, it's a means of grace throughout our lives as, as we observe what's going on and as, as, as it brings to mind the riches that are ours in Christ. Hi, baby. Like the Lord's Supper, something happens here. The water doesn't do anything. The water's not going to do anything. But the Spirit's going to do something here. When we baptize Theodore, the grace of God is going to be offered and exhibited, conferred, really and truly. And we need to remember that grace is not a substance, right? It's, it's a disposition of favor. And Caleb and Audrey and, and we as a congregation, we're going to commit to diligently keep before Theodore as we've committed to keep before Eloise and as we've, as we've promised to keep before all of our other children, we're going to keep before them the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of grace, and to pray for him and to pray for them to exercise the, the gift of future faith, right? the faith that's, that is to come. And we want to pray them toward and teach them toward embracing the inward reality to which their baptism points. And that, and that He will, by faith, receive the promise that is being offered today. The grace that is being offered. Receive by faith the, the grace that is being offered today. In the Lord's time, according to His will and good pleasure. So I need to ask everybody to remember your baptism as, as we stand here and as we do this. He's already smiling. And I don't mean remember the experience. I mean to remember the significance of what's happening. Everything that we've just heard. Remember that the, your baptism doesn't point to you, the promise that you made to God. It's a, it is a reminder of His promise to you. Remember that the water didn't save you, but it points to the one who does, the Lord Jesus. Remember what Jesus has accomplished for you and what benefits that he offers you. What are, what are yours in him as you look to him in faith? Remember that his blood has cleansed you from your sin as this water pours over Theodore. Remember that Christ's blood, just as the water poured over you at your baptism, has poured over you and has washed you clean. Remember that the Spirit has, as the Spirit has been, as the water is poured over, the Spirit has been poured out upon us. We've been re regenerated and united to Christ. Remember that you've been set apart by Him, visibly. You're visibly identified. He has said, I am yours, you are mine. Remember that God has made the promise in Christ to you and to your children. These promises are sure. Regardless of the strength of your faith. Because the surety is based upon the one who is always faithful. So with that being said, that being said, I know baby, I got you up here a little early. All right. Here are the promises, okay? Here are the promises. Hi, sweetie. Hear now the promises from God in His Word. For to you is the promise and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call unto Him. 
And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. Here are my questions for you. Caleb and Audrey, do you acknowledge Theodore's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you? Do you claim God's covenant promises on his behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate him to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example, that you will pray with him and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, do you? Let's pray together. Well, let's, first, let's do this. Sorry. We need to stand together. If you're a member of Christ Church Bentonville, would you stand? And here is the question for you. Please respond. If you enter into this with them, please respond by saying we do. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting Caleb and Audrey in the Christian nurture of Theodore? Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Theodore Christopher. And we thank you for your covenant promises. I pray that you will grant him the inward reality that corresponds to the outward washing. That he will be received in the protection and care of Christ and his church. Even as you have been our God, that you would be his God as well. Would you grant him the gift of the Holy Spirit? That his heart would be renewed and regenerated. That he would grow up never knowing a day apart from Christ. Like Timothy, who from infancy knew the scriptures that are able to make one wise unto salvation. Would you now set apart this water from its common use, this to its holy use, and grant that what we now do on earth may be confirmed in heaven. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I know, when I was holding you earlier, I didn't do this to you. Hey, buddy. Theodore Christopher. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I know I'm sorry. Not really. This child is now received into Christ's church, and you, the people of the congregation, in receiving him, promise with God's help to support him and Caleb and Audrey to the end that he may confess Christ as his Lord and Savior and come at last into his eternal kingdom. Jesus said, whoever shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. Let's pray again together. Well, Father, we praise you for your sovereign grace in Jesus Christ, and we pray that Theodore will grow daily in the love and knowledge of Christ, that he will serve you all his days and live for your glory. We pray that Caleb and Audrey will show wisdom, discernment, and diligence as they seek to raise him in the nurture and admonition of you, and that he will live so as to be a credit to his family and church. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.